Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the planet. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. It's great to see you all here. And we're back with a full team again for this uh, rather special program. We're delving more into the Bible side of stuff tonight with the discussion of Jesus Christ as the creator. And we can obviously go into not only him creating, but also what does it mean by worshipping, you know, in his fullness and all that kind of stuff. So it should be a, a pretty great program tonight, as well as obviously We've got ministry updates and some exciting news uh, with regards to that as well. So it's great to see everybody, and it's great to see the whole team as well. How are we all doing? Uh, let's start with you, Glenn, over in the States. What's it like over there? Oh, it's a beautiful day. I've been out clearing property. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Temperatures are in the upper 70s even today. Great stuff. Great stuff. Good, good to have you here. Good to have you here. Craig, how are you doing? Yeah, great to be back. Um, really well. We had a baptism of a family of four last night out uh, at the local beach, which was uh, really exciting. And uh, it's just great to see this um, family grow in the Lord. So, yeah, that's been been great. Fantastic. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Diane, so you're back in uh, Canberra again. Yes, yes, I am. But uh, I did have 10 days up in Brisbane on a really exciting project, which we'll tell you a little bit about uh, later on in the program. Indeed. Great stuff. Yeah, yeah. looking forward to hear about that. Uh, John. Well, <clears throat> this morning here in Queensland, sunny Queensland, where we don't have daylight saving because we're on God's time. And even the chickens admit that uh, they crow when the sun comes up. Um, we, we have a beautiful day today. We've had some lovely rain this week, so we're rejoicing in, in uh, all of the provision. Unfortunately, the grass is responding really well and getting longer and longer as I sit here looking out the window. So we've had a lovely time with ministry with Diane and opening up. I've got to save that to our ministry report, but it really has been a great uh, 10 days time. Fabulous. Great stuff. Yeah. And uh, Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Hopefully you guys can hear me as I'm having some microphone issues. Um, But yes, I'm fine. Um, I've been doing my Bible Journey Challenge. We're in numbers currently, uh, coming up to chapter 12. So getting through it, it's all good. Almost there, almost past the the sort of the more sort of drier parts of the (laughs) of Moses's books. Um, But yeah, no, it's doing really well. Um, And uh, it's, uh, it's good to be here. Great stuff. Fantastic. Yeah, no, it's great to see everybody. It's great to see some uh, some people joining us uh, already, which is fantastic. So thank you all very much for joining us. We've got a great program for you today. Um, let's dive into our, our ministry um, updates then and just go around because we've had a, quite a, a busy time over the last little while, which has been very exciting. So uh, let's dive into, into ministry report as we go around. Um, Diane and John, how about you kick it off with uh, what you've been doing recently with the museum and so on and so forth? Okay, now all I have to do is remember which buttons to press. So <laughs> advise me here, guys, on this. It's a week, weekly bane, isn't it? Yeah, go down to go down to PowerPoint. Yeah, there just want to select your PowerPoint presentation. That's it. We'll do the rest at this end. There we go. Okay, are we there yet? No, you're not, not on that one. 
We've got the How about, how about you start with Craig and come back to me? We'll come back to you. Probably sounds like a good idea. Craig, over to you. Has mine dropped off? Yours has dropped okay. off, yes. Okay, right, I'll, be two, right. I'll be two seconds. Well, we're off to a great start, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> well, I can give mine real quick. Go for it, Go for it. Quickly. Uh, I've been off visiting family, so. That's great stuff, yeah. yeah. So you've been, yeah. Oh, there we go. All right. I think we're about – so are we up and running now, Craig? I think we are for you. There we are. Yep. Yeah, yes. yeah. That's good. Um, yeah, so went last week, couldn't be on the show because I went down to the Hobart Gem and Mineral Show. Uh, there's a bit of a, a shot of it, but um, at the show there we met Dean and Maureen. Met him once before as well um, over at the Zian show, but Dean is actually a trained geologist. He worked um, in, in the field in geology. I'm not exactly sure what his role was of got in my mind that he might have been a consultant geologist not 100% sure but he's a young earth creationist as well so uh, don't let anyone tell you that all the geologists out there practicing um, hold to the millions and billions of years D Dean and his wife Maureen are Christians and um, you can sell it, see there to uh, your left they're selling some Tasmanian crokite and I've got a picture of that because we actually got a little bit of it um, it's nice. the Tasmanian state mineral. Ooh. It's a beautiful mineral, oh, and apparently okay. it's the best place in the world to find it. Um, it's a form of lead chromate, and, uh, yeah, it's really beautiful, our, our state mineral. My daughter was keen to get some, so we got that one. Uh, we picked up some museum gains. I wonder if you can pick which one is the fossil there and which one's the real one. Um, that's a piece of coral. And it's supposedly between 66 and 80 million years old. Um, that's the fossil there on the right. That just happens to be a, a piece of coral that I had down at Seahorse World. Um, very similar to it. Um, hopefully I'll find a better piece to, to, to match up with that as we go. But um, another one for our After Their Kind exhibition. Here's another one as well. Um, a beautiful brittle starfish plate. I've actually counted there's, there's closer to 30 on that one. Again, that's uh, late Jurassic, so showing that creatures really haven't changed much over time. So they look like the French ones, and I know just that's, yeah, they're, they're from the France area. Yep. Yeah, apparently they're, if you put a bit of toothpaste or something on them, you can see the pyrite come up mm -hmm. in them. I'm not game to do that, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, here's another one after their kind again between uh, well the Eocene period goes between about 34 and 56 million years ago and yet it's recognizably a crab so that's another great addition for the museum that will get on display soon and then after the show we went out and had a look around we were very lucky to get into a quarry in Hobart and uh, this is one that I found there. We found a whole bunch of shells. It's very, very massive dump of uh, mostly marine fossils, but you can see the charcoal that I found there. And on that very same rock on the right-hand side, you can see bryozoans. So we've got Ooh. woody plant material and coral in the very same rock. So evidence of the catastrophic dumping that we like to show on our show. 
Um, so that was last week. And during the week, uh, we had a school group and, and a bunch of other people actually visit the museum. But uh, this is a school group having a great time. They asked lots of really good questions to this group. Um, they were from Newstead Christian School in the Launceston region, just a bit south of us. So it was great to have them. Yeah. And we've got some uh, other testimonies to share a little bit later in the show. Um, but that's basically what I've been doing over the last little while, Joe. Yeah, brilliant, great stuff. It's uh, these can be real, um, you know, gold mines. These um, rock and fossil shows, and I remember we have. I mean, it's you have the enormous ones that are in the states and in Germany and stuff like that. But even the little ones can be useful because I remember we went to one in Oxford, uh, in the UK, which is our main, you know, fossil and mineral show, and um, it was a guy who worked as a um, structural geologist all over the world and he had an enormous collection of stalactites and stalagmites from all over the world and we were able to pick up some really great stuff and these are from places which as much as me and john would love to go and dig them up you you simply just can't anymore so uh it's it's great to be able to meet up with the fellow people in the world of geology as well as mm. the, the museum so grand stuff, grand stuff. all right john are you uh up and running with your slides yet? No, I'm still waiting for you to give me new instructions that work. So uh, we go to our... <laughs> well, we've completely lost your slides, unfortunately. So we'll oh, need to redo them again, yeah. I think, which is uh, unfortunate. But bear with mm, us, folks. Definitely. Just bring up your PowerPoint slides in front of you, John, and make sure they're on full yeah. screen for me. I'll do that. Sounds like Craig and I are having a similar problem today. No. <laughs> My Bible hit the delete key. Oh, that's uh, it. That's it. Just blame your Bible, Craig. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So there we are. We've got that okay, up. Go on full screen. If you want to come back to the uh, to us for me, John, Windows key and browser, and then we'll be able to get your screen shared. Okay. So there we are. We're back with you now. Share the screen. I'm there. We're on it. Look at this. All with hardly no instructions at all. That's good. Are you there? We're there. Go for it. Okay, you will see that uh, we've blown up Sam's design there with a few bits of help from our artist, Gary. But at the top, we've got a subject which is related to today. We're talking about Christ as creator. And, of course, usually when people talk about Christ, their key emphasis is redeemer. And you'll notice that people who don't talk about him as creator really talk about him as the Christ who's coming back. Uh, we make no apologies. We go from Genesis 1 to the last page of the book of Revelation. But in the last week or so doing ministry, Diane and I have been reminded, along with the rest of our team, that our role is not just preaching in churches, but showing the evidence that proves his handiwork. Oh, this is a museum in New Zealand set up in a country where well, Richard Owen, the guy who founded the Naturalist Museum in London, his son was the Surveyor General and responsible for coordination with the museums. Look what he's put on the outside. Lo, these are parts of his ways, but a little portion is heard of him. That's out of the Book of Job. And the museum, you can narrow it down exactly to one year when it was set up. And it was set up like the Naturalist Museum, like the Ontario Museum, like the museums in the USA, as showplaces of God's handiwork. Well, that's what we've been doing. We're re-establishing this trend. You know, when I was a student 
our, our state museum. I had no trouble borrowing things from it because even though they had come to know me as a university student as, as a creationist, that's what the museum was set up for. So last Sunday afternoon, we had a reveal of our new building and our new museum place. And of course, the good joy was we had a good crowd. We could only fit 40 in our seminar room and we pretty much filled it. It's pretty tiny, as you can see from the picture. And uh, Diane and I shared the joys of having a rent-free building. Now, you couldn't have asked for a better answer to prayer. We've been praying for a building somewhere in the tourist triangle from Toowoomba to Coolangatta to Caloundra. And here we are, slap bang in the middle, just off the M7 freeway. Fantastic, and particularly for free. We uh, have bought out some new literature to go with it, including our museum publication, in which we list things as the Creation Discovery Network. You'll hear more about that as a network going around the globe. It was Joseph's idea uh, over there in England and Craig's idea down there in Tasmania that we have a network where we can share an awful lot of evidence and even exchange specimens, or these days, courtesy of casting, so much easier around the globe. And that's our theme. The same theme the first scientists had about reflecting the mind of Christ. Even Isaac Newton read his introduction to Principia. He wanted to reflect the mind of Christ. That's our aim too. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. No apologies. That's what our creation discovery centers are about. Oh, and look, after Joseph told me I could get some of these from one of our furniture shops, we went down and look, Diane and I put these signs and these skulls together. Modern man has smaller brains than Cro-Magnon or Neanderthal. And there's the evidence. You can actually measure them. It's great for people to actually see the evidence because they think of the Bible as a blind faith proposition. No, it's actually a rock solid fact based faith. We love telling people the scripture says if Christ isn't risen from the dead, your faith is a waste of time. Well, on the grand opening day, they were greeted by some of our men who'd come that day. This is after the event is over. But it just made a good picture of the various ages who came. And you see our brand new blue Velociraptor? And he's got a question on him. Hi, I'm Velociraptor. Who created me? And, of course, the prejudiced Christians mostly want to rush. Well, God created. No, Velociraptor is actually a Steven Spielberg creation because that guy there doesn't match anything you find in the fossil record. And no, we don't dig them up blue. Uh, you can see uh, Karen's having a good old laugh along with the Velociraptor about the lies that are spread concerning him. There's Diane Eager. Oh, Diane, I remember you sitting there in amazement with our, it's really an accurate scale, um, Velociraptor. Painted the same colours, blue is the in thing for Velociraptor. It used to be brown and red. But now it's blue, and he's about the accurate scale. When you have a look, we actually had a cast of the real Velociraptor skull. And the one on the right, that's <coughs> the size they really are. It amazed people to discover that they hadn't quite been sold the ant's pants, that, that they, were, they were actually lied to. The models they see are not real at all. So we're pursuing that in one of our displays in the museum, because there's what we've just purchased. What is it? 
it's an accurate life-size cast, real cast, of the actual original fossil of Velociraptor. Did you notice one thing? Its tail bends up over its head. Its head is on a bent neck tucked under its tail. And that's a classic sign of being drowned. Now, if you don't understand that argument, uh, think carefully. If you've got a long tail and a long neck, as you are drowning, the last thing you do, and this is well published in our, our um, the scientific literature, as well as you can find it on our Q&A sites and fact file, that that pose there is not just a death pose, it's the majority pose for dinosaurs, and it's a sign they drown. Oh, they're looking for air, they bring their mouth up, their neck is thrown back, they breathe as much as they can, but they just swallow water and drown. At the same time as their tail is tensed and flies over the top of their, their head. But more important than that, you will find their body will only remain like that while they're alive. So therefore, this guy was drowned, but he was buried real fast. Of course, there's our blue Velociraptor. There's a couple of our guys helping us set up the museum. And yes, volunteers is what we need if you're listening here in Australia. Look what Velociraptor says. Now they want to give me feathers, big galahs, etc. And you realize there isn't a single Velociraptor that's found like that? Yes, that guy should soon be in our display. He's a Velociraptor with feathers. Now, despite the total absence of evidence to show feathers, this is just the popular way they're being made. So you're being sold a lie by the movies, by the dinosaurs, by the display companies. Hmm. The, the motto of our museum is that Jesus Christ is the creator and that he is the way and the truth and the life. And he's the one who said, if it wasn't so, I would have told you. Well, all these things are aims for our museum. So there's one of our most popular displays, just two boxes of Lego, same thing, dinosaur, and, and they made them up. Oh, the one on the left side is not made up. And the simple question they got on the handout was how long would it take the blocks to actually evolve themselves, make themselves, arrange themselves to be the dinosaur on the right. Now, we didn't invent this concept. We borrowed it from the guys in Tasmania. So thank you, Craig. Thank you, uh, all the folks down in Tasmania, because they have a far more elaborate model of uh, the Sydney Opera House. We could only afford two little $16 packs uh, of Lego dinosaurs, but the point's the same. Everybody knew it would never happen at all. The Bible proclaims over and over again that all things were made by Jesus. Now, you can't avoid this. It's not in Genesis as a statement like that. In the beginning, God created, but we've said over and over again, the word God is not a definitive name. It's a position. Who is this God? In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the creator. And Paul writes in Colossians, all things were made for Jesus, all things are made by Jesus. And that's going to be our theme tonight in the biblical study a little bit later. But our needs, as Joseph does, as the folks in Tasmania do, we need volunteers. But we need them more because we're just starting. Um, if you've got fossils out there, or ancient tools or archaeology that's relevant to uh, Christianity and the whole of the biblical history, we need you to become a donor of that material to our new creation museum. Well, there's one, la <coughs> one lady who's donated plenty of time. You will see we've taken... Uh, 
our logo and adapted it to Creation Discovery Centre and made a big logo stand-in. It looks great. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Gary, for all your work there. And there's Karen. She's volunteered her time. She's a qualified tiler. One of the, the, in fact, she was the first qualified female tiler in Queensland. And she was trained by none other than our ever-famous Fred Dainty, one of the builders who up till uh, he went to be with the Lord actually did so much building for us in creation research. She benefits us greatly. We need more people like her. But we also have some wonderful people who responded instantly. I realised that we were short one thing. We needed somebody who would actually provide some artwork for us. And Well, Diane did that banner at the top there. You'll see that's the same artist. That's Linda on the right-hand side. And she's got three different styles there. An abstract style, uh, what I call primitive art or kids' art, and then on the left-hand side, a nature study of a beautiful little fairy ring. And you see, the question on the brochure was, what do these things have in common and how do they prove creation? We're going to play you a little video shortly as you ponder about this tree here. You see, Linda had a bad accident. She had lots of head damage and, and they gave her uh, art as a therapy. Now, I'll tell you what, as she discovered, she's got some hidden talent. So make an offer for the painting, and I'm sure we'll pass it along and benefit creation research as well. She did that as an abstract deliberately, quite different from the, the actual fairy wren, quite different from the painting in the kids' style. Now, it's got a lot in common with this. There's Dr. Nyan Eager's arrangement of the Lego blocks as our dinosaur. Now, it may not be as pretty as the art, Diane, sorry about that, but you did a wonderful job, and they've all got something in common, and they were all created. So here's what we need again, before we sort of get ready to hand over to Joseph, who's going to play us a video that we recorded just the other day. We need volunteers. If you're in southeast Queensland, and you can access our website, creationresearch.net, or our email, tell us that you'd like to volunteer. <clears throat> what do we need you for? Well, as Craig will tell you, the biggest need is people manning desks when, when tourists want to come, when, when people want to come. If you've got old axes, old <clears throat> artifacts from overseas, then think about donating them. Oh, when will it be open? Well, no, we aren't open any day of the week at the moment for one reason. We had a trial run with our supporters and it received really, really positive um, feedback. Craig Hawkins will be up here in Queensland next week and I'm sure I'll get him to do lots of work, but you'll find we will be having our next major event on the big scale with the dinosaurs outside the museum as well as inside, and that should be at the end of uh, May and into June because our school holidays come there. So keep your eyes open on our website. Come visit Jurassic Ark and have a look at our Velociraptor and enjoy the cool that's up there now. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to put that slide up. And Joseph, could you bring our video up, please, mate, of uh, one of the points we've made out of the museum, which has been very helpful. Absolutely. Yeah, no worries. Let me just pull it up here for you now. Sit back and enjoy. Question. What has Velociraptor got in common with three pieces of art? 
on the back wall here at our Creation Discovery Centre. Or if you look carefully, you'll see there's a Bible verse referred to, Romans 1.20, and a question mark. Oh, Velociraptor? Well, the answer to both of these questions shows in a question I'm going to hold up. Hi, my name is Velociraptor. Who created me? And you know the answer, I know the answer. This fake size one was created, designed, invented, put together for Steven Spielberg for the movies. This didn't happen by itself. That's what a creation is. The paintings didn't happen by themselves. I know the creator, then her name is Linda. She put the paint and she made it do things that paint doesn't do itself. You can recognize a creation, I can recognize a creation, and that's what Romans 1.20 says. We can see the evidence of God's handiwork, the Creator, in His creation. Now, His real Velociraptor was way tinier than this, and His artwork of skies and trees is much better than my friend Linda can do. But you see, you know it. You know the evidence of creation, and that's why the Bible says you understand it, you see it, and you and I are without excuse. Make sure you get to know who the Creator is, Jesus Christ. This is the Creation Guy, John Mackay. See you next time from the Creation Discovery Centre. There we go, great stuff. Right, um, let's carry on around with the uh, ministry reports then. We've heard from um, Craig and we've heard from uh, Diane and John as to some of the stuff that they've been doing. I've got a very brief report before we move on to the main topic of tonight, which is obviously Jesus Christ as creator. Um, and uh, I'm currently in uh, the Isle of Jersey, which is where I'm broadcasting from right now. And uh, it, one of the reasons, uh, this is basically a, a family holiday, but one of the things that we thought we'd do is take advantage of the fact that we're here. And next week, we're going to be dealing with a very specific topic, particularly the question of how many different species of human are there, particularly from a biblical perspective, because it's a, a big discussion, it's a big topic, both from a secular as well as a Christian and a creation perspective, uh, and there's lots of different opinions. So we're going to be discussing some of that. We've obviously got John and me uh, with the, the fossily knowledge, Diane and uh, and Craig with the, um, the biological side of stuff, Glenn as well. So it should be a really great topic to delve into. But one of the reasons why we thought we'd do it next week is because actually here on Jersey is some of the best preserved and some of the first Neanderthal sites that have ever been discovered, particularly in the British Isles. So I'm really looking forward to going and visiting one of the Neanderthal sites, which is just around the corner from where we're staying. So we should be able to bring some great content uh, for you very shortly, as well as keep an eye out on things like YouTube shorts and so on and so forth, because they're still just as popular as ever. Um, one far past um, or one quick um, little update, which I found quite humorous, which maybe the uh, the team would like to um comment on the uh, the high priestess of climate change greta thunberg there she is there uh well it was announced this week that she is being awarded an honorary doctorate in theology because why wouldn't you uh from the university of helsinki in in finland and um so yeah the the sort of the the, the swedish um activist which is how she's actually labeled on the university of helsinki's 
um, website where they're announcing they're awarding her an honorary doctorate in theology uh, is going to be re- receiving this very shortly. And I think first and foremost, it really does show you that this whole idea of climate worship is indeed a religion. I mean, she's being um, given a doctorate in theology in the study of God. And it really seems that the God that she worships, you could call it Mother Earth, you could call it, um, you know, any one of the, the Greek goddesses of the earth or whatever, even humanism. But it's certainly a um, looked looked at as a as a religion. So I'll just put up a couple of links in case anybody wants to uh, have a look at those. But any thoughts from the from the team about this? Well, it's yeah, not it's surprising, surprising because a doctorate gives you apparent honour in the eyes of the people, and they really understand even what you got it for. It's just you can put doctor in front of your name, and all of a sudden you know everything, and mm. that's what. Uh, uh, worries me about so many doctors because I know so many people who have doctorates and I'm not impressed by their intellect at all. They may have good memories or done one project or whatever, but the illusion that you actually can be asked any question about anything and your answer qualifies more attention than anybody else, that's what will artificially be added to um, Greta at the moment. Sadly, it'll not do her opinion of herself any good whatsoever. But it's interesting that it's a a PhD in theology because that's what her whole um, climate change model is, pure Greta Thunberg theology, not Christian theology, not even Buddhist theology. It's it's Greta Thunberg philosophy, theology, etc. Diane, any comments? I think it's a classic case of worshipping the creation rather than worshipping the creator. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, and we were discussing some of that last week as well and the the whole the whole concept it's um it's pretty ridiculous really. I was just saying up on the uh, screen at the moment you can see the official Helsinki University where she's listed with a whole group of other people which are, you know, reasonably enough they've got uh, they're involved in in some form of religious study or so on and so forth. And then there's just Greta Thunberg activist. Or if you want to see there's lots of reports if you stick it in, um, but the one that made me chuckle is uh, one of the um uh, not the b.com which is sort of the other side of the satirical uh, website but these report on real life events um where you can have a read of it there as well but the original uh, documentation is actually on the Helsinki website so just just two things for those who have been complaining about the microphone it seems it's the frogs at Diane's place um <laughs> that you actually hear it must be a wild wild party at the frogs who yeah. are down in Canberra uh, yeah. but the other thing is the bit of news that attracted my attention uh, according to Fox our friend uh, uh, Dawkins has come mm. out and said there's only male and female. Now, good on you, Richard Dawkins. Um, we encourage you to keep looking as to why that might be the case. Uh, in the beginning, God created them male and female. So he, he's got a little way to go yet, but good on you for going as far as being brave enough to actually say that. And, of course, you might realise that it's very politically incorrect to come out so dogmatic uh, on male and female but he's got his reputation. He doesn't need your applause. He doesn't need your research money. And that's about the only time you find many, many professors come out and tell you the real truth. Mm. And just just on that, actually, I, I was I was watching. I think it, I think it was the interview he did with Piers Morgan. Um, but it was it was actually really interesting because he he admitted in that um, uh, the interview that they don't know what was before 
the Big Bang or before you know evolution or wh- whatever he was he was saying during that interview, um, which I thought was very sort of if quite frank because quite a lot of people would say, you know, especially in the atheist space would say, well. Well, it wasn't God. It was obviously some form of cause. It must have been a, something, but it wasn't God. But Richard Dawkins said, we don't know. No one knows. So, again, you know, props to Richard Dawkins for actually being honest. I uh, remember he was my, the first ever um, professor at university who pointed out when um, we were dealing with things like evolution and the, the age of the earth and stuff like that, and he started getting questions on stuff like the origin of life and what was there before and so on and so forth, and he basically just said, and I always appreciate his honesty, uh, he basically said, that's not science, we're dealing with philosophy now. Um, and you, you really are. You are dealing with something which is philosophical at its source. Um, and he, he said, you know, you can ultimately believe what you like about it. And if you want to, he said, in my opinion, you're not necessarily, well, you're not going to get any answers from, from science or philosophy on its own. But uh, you're certainly going to get further speaking to a philosopher than you are a scientist. So um, there we are. Anyway, um, just a little uh, <laughs> fun update from there as to what's been uh, what's been going on in the world but let's move on to our main topic we're going to uh, delve into this sort of study of jesus christ as the creator and i see there's lots of discussions and lots of comments coming through on the chat keep the questions coming keep the discussions coming um we don't uh, sort of answer the questions as they come in uh we do sort of leave them to a group because it it means that we can deal with them all together so keep the questions coming in we were going to have a section from john and a little section from craig and then we will take some questions before we move on to the next part so john over to you and uh hopefully the slides are all still up and running if you were going to use them let's see what we've got up here okay so there we are all right, does that everyone see that? Can they? Oh, good, yeah. Good. All right, so let's uh, let's move on here. How come we can't move them, Joe? Why aren't they moving? You just need to click on the sc- slides, and then you should be able to scroll through them. Yeah, that's what. There we are. No, it's still not moving, Joe. I don't know what you've done. Are you on um, your PowerPoint? I'm on the PowerPoint. Yep, right there. All right, everything's absolutely frozen. <laughs> All right, let's bring us back okay. to us then. So are you on the PowerPoint at the moment? No, I'm just on our full screen here, and Diane's disappeared as well. So Yeah, no, you need All to right. uh, the, you'll need to go to the actual PowerPoints themselves, John. So you are still on our mm-hmm. screen. All right, let's try this. So if you go down to the bottom of the screen, click on your PowerPoint, and then you'll be able to go through it. it. Okay, it's... Sorry, guys, it's not. There's that one there, but it's ah, there we are. There we go. Good, thank you. On we go. Uh, all right, we've uh, talked to you about our new museum opening. So, for those of you who live in southeast Queensland who are up on this beautiful day, we do have simple ways you can donate now. In fact, I get totally bamboozled by all of this technology. Simply use our phone number, it goes straight to the Creation Research Bank account. Uh, so we'll leave that up there a little while later too. We've got question times coming up all through the program, so make sure you you take advantage of it. Get your uh, questions into Sam now. But this is a program I've been doing for many years to remind people of something that the Lord taught me. 
that when you look at the Trinity, the triunity, no, that word is not in the Bible, uh, but neither is the word Bible in the Bible. Uh, you will find that the tr concept of Trinity, God as Father, God as Son and Holy Spirit, actually shows up even in pragmatic terms. A simple question, what year is it? Um, when you look at the year and you say the year is 2023, sorry, don't forget the AD bit. If you want to insult a Muslim, insist that it's 2023 because he doesn't take his dates from uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. He takes his dates from the coming of uh, the, the prophet of Islam. The AD, Anno Domini, in the year of the birth of our Lord. Now, over the years, I've been impressed by the history printed into our buildings. Um, you see that shop in the distance? Do you see the fairly modern car in the front? Well, the shop's not a modern car, AD 1932. Now, that used to be common on all buildings here in Australia. Any government building or any Christian building or any secular building often had a date signature. Of course, sometimes it had the name of the builder instead of the date. Um, interesting bit of politics even all through the whole of history. The graves did it too. Do you see when they used to put the dates in Latin? A, D, M, D, C, 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 X, L, I. Now, if you can't read uh, the old Latin and Greek numerals, I'm sorry for you, but it, it's sort of like M equals a thousand. It's code, but it's how the Romans and that used to put their numbers. But notice the AD in the 1800s was still there to tell you what year this was built in. Now, I've got a question there because you and I need to face up to the fact that the church is not as popular as it was when those Victoriana cemeteries and shops were really built. And in fact, we don't live in an ADBC world anymore. We live in a BCE, before the Christian era. You may not realize it was Jewish thinkers who actually promoted that because that demotes Jesus from before Christ or after the birth of Christ down to before a political era, before the Christian era. And if you really want to insult the Muslims, then suggest BCE because they only like the after the prophet era. Um, BCE, or oh, BC is much better because it identifies it to the birth of a person and you can take that person as you wish. But look how the church founders, look how the church hymn writers, look how it's historically recorded. The church is one foundation. It's the old hymn, Jesus Christ our Lord. When I first became a Christian, I loved this hymn. Jesus Christ our Lord is our foundation. The church's foundation, what does it actually mean? There's the question that occurred to me. Who is Jesus? John chapter 1. Many of you have sat through Bible studies in which I've taken you to John chapter 1 and reminded you that what it says is no different what the last book of the Bible says or the first book of the Bible says. Um, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things are made by him, says verse 3. Nothing came into existence without him. And verse 14, the Word, who is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Now, the whole of John's gospel is about Jesus Christ. And John tells you 
that he is the creator. He is the one who spoke the word in the beginning. Let there be light. That's an example of God who is the word. And we've already referred to Colossians chapter 1, which says that Christ, all things are made by him, all things made for him, who is the head of the church. Now, don't wish to sound anti-church, but this is not a reference to the primate of the Church of England or the, or the Greek Orthodox or to the Catholic Pope. This is only a reference to the one who is Jesus, the foundation of the church. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, past tense, and without him was not anything made that was made. In six days, Jesus Christ made the heavens and the earth. Now, are you catching that God his Father is in the Bible? Because Jesus taught you to pray, our Father. And then he told the disciples to hang around until the Holy Spirit comes. Um, wow, God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. All things are made by him, and without him not anything was made. Yes, it's in my beloved old King James, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory. Now, do you catch the change in style there? The New Testament is a compilation of eyewitness accounts. We saw him. We watched this ourselves. This is not just made up theology to get a degree on climate change from a theological institution. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I've said before, and I'll keep saying it, the first time I preached on this subject was in a Baptist church. And I got into trouble from the senior deacon afterwards who came to me and said, you're wrong. Jesus is not the creator. God is. And I thought, oh, no, the Muslims, the Islamics, the Christadelphians would love such a statement because the minute you make Jesus as a lesser than than God the Father, you strike several problems. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the, the Lord God Jehovah says, I alone am the Savior. And if you, you don't have a Savior in me, you don't have a Savior, which means that when you call Jesus Savior in the New Testament, you're actually admitting that Jesus and Jehovah are the one being. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is God the Creator. Jesus is the head of the church. If he made all things, then in the beginning, God created. But we've said it before. We'll say it again. The word God in Hebrew is not a name. So when you have uh, sermons on Elohim as the name of God, sorry, that is a description of God. It's a statement of his power. It also tells you that the I am bit, that there's more than one. Uh, but it's not a description. It's not a, a name description like Jesus is. When God became flesh and dwelt with us, he was given the name Jesus for one particular reason. He'd save his people from their, their sins. God the Son, God the Creator, and God who is the head of the church. The God is a position. It's like King Charles. Now, the current King Charles is different from several of them we've had before, some of whom have had serious trouble keeping their heads attached. God the Son, God the Creator, God, the head of the church, this is who Jesus is. Now, don't hear me wrong. Uh, I, I got into trouble from some of the 
the very keen um, Trinitarians. There's nothing wrong with the Trinity. I love the Trinity, but you've got to realize that there's a distinction of roles. So in Hebrews, it says God, who at many times and many places has spoken to our fathers. Now, in case you can't follow Hebrews, because I'll be honest, I'm glad those of you who are reading through Sam, you're up to numbers. Hey, move on, get to Chronicles if you want to see some numbers. Uh, but, but enjoy numbers and keep looking for those good little bits that are in there. Don't hear me wrong. God, who at many ways, <laughs> in many different times and places, the word God in the New Testament is far more specific role-wise than the word Elohim as Lord or God, as God rather, in the Old Testament Hebrew. Okay, so you will find in the New Testament, it has much more connotations of God who is Father. Hebrews chapter 1, God, Father, who at many times and many ways has spoken to our fathers. You catch the picture? God as Father has spoken to our fathers through the prophets, right? And recently, the writer of Hebrews says, he's spoken to us through his Son, through whom he made the universe, through whom he made the worlds, through whom he created all things. So God as Father has actually given the Son as creator the role of bringing things into existence. You need to see that the writer of Hebrews tells you this, in case you're wondering why um, the book of Hebrews was written to a lot of Jews. They'd actually uh, found themselves in a serious issue because while the Romans thought they were Jews, they didn't have to worry too much about taxes and they all had their business license to choose. That's important. But the Romans had almost just discovered that the Christians were not Jews. It would cost them big time financially. So he has to establish one thing. This Jesus, who you're thinking of giving up, is actually God in the book of Isaiah. This Jesus is actually God the creator in the book of Genesis. They needed to be established in who their saviour actually was. So where we started, all things were founded by Christ. The church is one foundation. Um, I go to many, many churches and some, some will stand up and sing for 45 minutes. And often they're praise songs about Jesus, but usually as saviour. When you look at your New Testament and Old Testament, you have to give God the credit for all that he's done. God as son, God as creator, God as the founder of the seven-day week. You see, if you want to take this more seriously, you need to think through if Christ is the creator, then he created all things. In six days, God created. God the Father handed the task of making the seven-day week across to God the Son. Now think carefully with those of you who struggle with, well, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Exodus tells us to rest on the seventh day because God did. But in reality, this Christ who created the seventh day actually stamped his nature into all of his creation. And every day was made with a long-term view in mind. The Jews needed to rest because they hadn't rested for several hundred years of captivity. But the rest was a picture of what was to come. It makes it quite clear in the book of Hebrews in many places that what the Jewish people were doing was just a taste of the joy that was to come. The real rest came when God made the world on day one. 
right? You see, he built his nature at the, as the founder of light into day one. So don't be surprised the early Christians who were Jews kept both days, one day for rest and one day for declaring the light of the world had shone into the darkness. Oh, yes, I didn't make that up. That's John's argument in chapter one. But have a look at Exodus. Six days you will labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. Well, this was to remember that that's exactly what God the Creator had done. And on the seventh day, they could rest from their labor. Just like when they'd escaped from Egypt under Moses, under God's protection, they finally got rest after hundreds of years of slavery. And you and I need to come to grips with the fact that getting rested from slavery in Egypt was a real joy. It didn't do them much good. They fought and squabbled and, and disbelieved God. But getting rest from the burdens of your sin, getting freedom from sin and death and hell was way more important than getting rest just from slavery in Egypt. For in six days, Moses goes on to write, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he hallowed it. In six days, the Lord. Do you realize Lord is a name? That the world just wasn't made by God as a superpower. It was made by God who is the Lord. That is a name. Now, we've used the old honorific for titled people in, in English society, but they are above the others. This Lord is printed in capitals because he's above all. But it turns out that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to know about our calendar, the foundation stone Jesus Christ, who is the church's one foundation, is also our calendar's one foundation. You see, he created time. I've said over and over again, if you uh, go around saying, I feel like I'm wasting my time. Sorry, you didn't make time. You don't own it. You're wasting God's time. That's how important it is that you realize that you're not only wasting God generically, you're wasting God specifically. You're wasting the time Jesus Christ has given you for him and by him. Now, you notice the little block that I've invented there. Many, many years ago, we came up with this block system uh, as Ken Ham and I worked together for many years. Seven day week, Exodus 20 verse 11. It's immediate context. It's long term context is Genesis 1 and 2. And now that Christ, the creator, has come, you know that the foundation stone of that whole calendar is Jesus Christ. Hence, AD 1932, AD 2023, not BCE, uh, not the uh, after the death or whatever you want to make it for Jesus Christ. So don't be surprised, as I love to remind people, don't be shocked, don't be amazed that uh, Jesus said that. Boy, have I bored some audiences with repeating this again. And some of them have come to the point where they said, I can believe that now. If you believe Moses, said Jesus, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. An immediate context, we're in John's gospel. He's been talking to the Jewish people. But of course, prior to the Jews, they were the ones who were in Egypt. Prior to that, they all got off Noah's Ark. Prior to that, well, you read all about the creation through to the flood, through to Babel in the writings of Moses, Genesis 1 to 11. Keep going, those of you who are joining Sam. You'll find it over and over again, the importance of what God uses Moses, who is a picture 
of Jesus Christ yet to come. And Adam is a picture of Jesus Christ. If you believe Moses, we read about Adam. You'd believe me, for he wrote about me. Hmm. He wrote about the coming saviour. He wrote about the one who would be like him, the one who at birth, at Christmas time, would have to go down into Egypt after, you know, he was maybe two or three years of age and then come out of Egypt, just like happened to Moses and his people. Jesus was written about in the five books of the Pentateuch. But since you Jewish people so hypocritically don't actually believe what Moses wrote, now do you know what's got me into trouble? You archbishops, you don't believe what Moses wrote. You pro-gay uh, theologians don't believe what Moses wrote. Yes, he's got lots of things to say that we really don't like, but you'd better believe it. God gave it to Moses as a preemptive statement on what his position is about things. If you don't believe what Moses wrote, creation, Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel, the law of God, then how can you hypocritically claim to believe what I say? Now, before we have our first question time, Craig's got a little bit to add here. So flick me back off PowerPoint, Joe, and we'll let uh, Craig loose. And Joe's on mute, so I will carry Sorry, on. Sorry, there we are. Sorry. All right. Um, yeah, so, so Craig, over to you. Uh, I think you've got a, a little bit to add on to there, which ties really in nicely with what John's been saying. So over to you. Well, really, I'm just uh, bringing up a few testimonies from our museum in the last couple of weeks where people have seen how uh, the reality of nature, creation, the, the truth of the Bible has actually led them down to a, a path of discovery. And uh, just earlier this week, um, we had a lady that uh, was brought to the museum uh, with someone from our church and he'd been witnessing to her for at least three years. And I had the school group where you saw the photo earlier um, that I was taking and I was presenting to them and she was just listening in the background. And unbeknownst to me, she then went out the front and was talking to our team out there and said, it, it all, all, all makes sense now. It was like it was a, a piece of the puzzle that she hadn't quite got. So um, she, then prayed for repentance. Uh, she did, you know, the tears were welling up in her eyes, apparently, and um, she was uh, so thankful. She'd been involved in the occult for years, which I think on a spiritual level was something that was really holding her back, but she just uh, realised that Jesus Christ was created, that he is Lord, and, um, and she gave her life to him. So that was really exciting for the team there and for our, our church member who, who saw the power as well mm -hmm. of the Creation Museum. Um, so th that's one example. Um, earlier in the week, uh, we had a, a, um, another couple, uh, James and Kelly. Um, uh, Kelly was not interested in Christianity all, at all. Her, her husband had a Catholic background. Um, and, and he sort of made the comment that she just wanted to um, have proof that there is a God. And so I jumped in there and I said, well, if I can show you proof that there, there must be a creator, a, a God, will you come into the museum? And she said, yes. And so I took her in and, and showed her the bacterial flagellum machine, one of the su supposedly simplest creatures out there, the complexity of the, 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 
design and detail just in that creature is incredible. And then out to the Lego Opera House, similar to the, the idea that John was presenting with the dinosaur and went through those things and then asked, do you think that that's, uh, have I convinced you that that's proof that there must be a creator? And she said, yes, you have. And so after that, I was then able to present who the creator is. And, um, and she went away with resources uh, to, to study and, and look into further. So we need to pray for her. And a third example is Mark and Betty, who came into the museum uh, a, a week or so ago. And they were just coming in to buy some fossils, actually. And we got talking. And two hours later, they left. And Mark made the comment to me. He said, I've never heard this presented in this way before where you tied in with real history. So I was able to present to him because uh, he had questions about where the different religions like Islam and so on came, came in. And I was able to present to him our timeline and where Abraham was and, and how some of those other, other religions sort of came from that um, and just tie in other aspects of history in the Bible. And uh, he was really excited, listened intently, and he also took, took resources with him. So we need to pray for Mark and Betty as well. But uh, they really were engaged by the fact that real history, real facts, real science ties in with the Bible and uh, you really can't separate them. So that's three examples. Joe, you can probably go back to the team now. I'm just showing you how great stuff. Um, yeah, it ties in. Yeah, perfect, great stuff. No, fantastic. And uh, it really does, you know, doing this where it's one of the important reasons why we do collect and we do display evidence because as Diane says many times, God is the God of the real world. And so we'd expect to see his evidence in the real world, particularly in light of when we read Romans chapter one, where it says that God has stamped his very nature into all of creation. So um, it really is a vital part of the work that we do. Well, we're going to have a, a brief break now and delve into some thank yous and some questions as well. And then we're going to uh, kick off again with diane and that'll go on to john uh, for further discussion in this topic as we go but for now uh, let's do a bit of teamwork and hand it over to sam for some thank yous and then for some questions all righty uh let's do some thank yous first up it's doki doki as usual with two u.s buckaroos a pixelated hippo chomps on a one-up for those who are not in the up and up a one-up is from mario it's basically an extra life um, so there we go. So thank you very much, Doki Doki. And Neil has come through with two British buckaroos and eight British buckaroos, making 10 British buckaroos. There we go. Thank you very much. Neil's been Neil. running hot today. Neil's Sorry? been running hot today. He's been making me laugh with some of his comments on yeah. the chat. He, uh, uh, Neil, Neil's on point today. It's, he's, he's, yeah, he's he is. really is. Um, Doki again coming in with uh, 99 US centaroos, 100 underlined twice. Just, just because you can. Um, and again, coming in with uh, 149 US Buckaroos, a pink umbrella on a beach. Oh, nice. How lovely. Uh, Michael Hu, coming in with 1999 US Buckaroos, Shiba, uh, Shiba Dog in samurai armor, holding a golden trophy. Yes. 
<laughs> love me some Japanese things. Uh, and Doki Doki as well coming in with 99 centuries and upside down face. I'm not quite sure how to do an upside down face. Oh, yeah, I can have a sideways <laughs> face. There you go. Um, all right, then. Uh, so the first question comes in from Hawkadoo. Uh, Hawkadoo has uh, wanted this question answered, so I promised he, he would get an answer. Uh, have, you, have any of you ever provided verifiable evidence for creation? Joe, you can take that one. Um, well, the first uh, thought goes to the ultimate proof for creation, um, which is design, which you do a great program about and we use a lot. Uh, in fact, um, we actually used that example, you used that example with the dinosaurs um, last week in terms of how do we recognize design? How would you be able to prove that design has a designer and uh, and so on and so forth? So in a, in a very brief nutshell, and you probably want to comment on this further, John, when you're looking for evidence of design or you're asking how do you know that something couldn't happen by itself, you're looking for something which has got properties, it contains properties which do not come from the materials that it's made of. And we've just done a whole series on our YouTube channel, which is based off of the research that John and Diane have done previously, which was based off of the criticism that people like Richard Dawkins give about trilobite eyes. All right now, uh, I've just noticed a, a quick question pop up. Any gemstones in your museum? Yes, we have plenty of gemstones and we even have gemstones uh, for sale, beautiful crystals and all sorts. But the one thing that you uh, realize when you look at things like calcite, calcite is one of the most famous uh, and well-known and most common uh, types of crystals. And they come in all sorts of various forms and colors with the calcite crystals. Um, but the one thing you'll always notice about them is that they always have straight sides. Right? That's one of the unique things about crystals. In other words, in its nature form, in its normal form, in the form that natural processes produce, it only ever produces straight sides. We see no evidence of it ever producing anything other than straight sides. Now that in itself points towards law and order in the universe, which uh, points towards it not coming from random chance. But the thing that we point, the thing, the comment that we make with regards to trilobite eyes is they are also made out of crystals, right? They're also made out of calcite. Only this time, they're not straight sided, they're curved. And there are hundreds of these concave little um, crystal lenses inside trilobite's eyes. Now, what you're looking at is uh, evidence of something, i.e. the trilobite eyes, that have properties, which is they're curved, that do not come from the materials that they're made of, right? which is that the material only ever has straight-sided properties, it never has curved properties, so you're immediately looking of evidence of design and a design always proves that somebody who is outside of that creature outside of that design somebody who's not part of that design somebody who's more intelligent of that than that design and somebody who existed before that design actually made those individual elements do what they do not do naturally right that's the very definition of what a design is so on a very basic level and i know you use examples like boomerangs and stuff john but even just a car is a 100 moving object made out of 100 non-moving parts it requires somebody who's more intelligent than the car it requires somebody who's not part of the car and it requires somebody who existed before the car did to actually take all those individual components and put them together and you can use this example over and over again all the way down to a computer code 
which is just ones and noughts. See, codes mean nothing unless an intelligence source defines what their meaning is. Right? They don't come about by themselves. Information itself only comes from an intelligence source because it contains properties that do not come from natural materials. So immediately when you start looking at things like DNA, which is a, a code found in nature, when you start looking at the way that things are orchestrated and put together, you're getting increasing evidence, provable evidence, testable evidence that something who exists or somebody who existed before it, who's not part of it and is far, far more intelligent than it actually caused them all to do what they were supposed to do in the beginning. Um, John, any comments? Yeah, sure. I think I can see a, a, a dilemma for Hawker do because he's making a, a, an assumption that's invalid. When you look at what he's asking, I think his question is all about can you prove creation as in day one of Genesis, right? Nothing is turned into something. Now, when you read through Genesis chapter one, you weren't there, I wasn't there, Hawker Do wasn't there. We, we can't go back and visually watch it. But we can do what God says when he said, you will love me with your mind. You will think. Now, most of us don't want to face up to the fact that there are two sorts of creation in Genesis. The first one that is the really tough one. We're not very good at this, even though the Bible says man is made in God's image. So we are made to be like God. If he is the creator, we can create. Whether we like it or not, Linda's paintings are creations. They don't happen by themselves. Even a billion gazillion years wouldn't make one of those paintings. But we can take the pigments out of ground um, rock and all of that, put them together with egg yolk and make them do things they wouldn't otherwise do. That is a creation. But where's it coming from? Genesis 1 has creation out of nothing. We stumble at that. Uh, Genesis 1 also has a second type of creation, as you see in Genesis chapter 2, where God took dust that it already made four or five days earlier. And it didn't make any people all by itself. And even if you gave it six billion years of evolution, it would still never make any people. Hence, that's where the foolishness of evolution shows up. So it's one thing for Hawker do to criticize, can you prove creation when he can't even get life going from nothing over millions of years and billions of years, it won't happen. So come up to grips with that, but come to grips with the fact that nothing to something is tough for us, but taking dust and turning it into something else, we're pretty good at. In one of our displays at the museum, I had three levels in one of our glass cases. We had stone tools at the top, we had boomerangs in the middle, and we had a pot, a clay pot in the bottom. Now, none of those things happen by themselves. We took the clay and we shaped it. Clay doesn't make pots, no matter how long you give it, any more than it makes life forms. It just simply can't do that. So we are very good at making creation type two, where you take something that already exists, utilize its properties, and make something that would never happen by itself. So creation type two, uh, Hawker do, we actually can demonstrate with no trouble whatsoever. And you might find this one very helpful if you want to understand world economics. Um, what is economics? Well, you get your $5 bill, right? Australian $5 bill. And I love to do this. I go to America and I, and I get my $5 bill, my five-pound note. I get a five-franc uh, note. Uh, I, I get a, a $5 American note. And I ask them, 
which one is worth more because they're all the same size. They're all made of paper. And then they're stuck because is it worth money because it's made of paper? No. Paper has no innate value. Is it worth money because it's got pretty ink on it? No. The value of each of those pounds or, or coins or francs or whatever comes from outside because it, it, economics is based on artificial values that we create from nothing, right? We invent the whole value and we put it on paper, which has it's got no value. Hence, they can take it back, rip it up, and again, it's got no value whatsoever. So the closest you get to creating something from nothing is in the world of economics. And that's why you've got to watch it. The governments can cancel your wealth anytime they wish because it originally started with value nothing. And it's really a, an honor system. The honesty of the government equals the value that other governments will give to that pound, that, that dollar, that uh, ruble, etc. So when you have a look, Orkadu, you need to do some more thinking. In the beginning, God created, and in essence, the old word ex nihilo, Latin out of nothing, is a good description. There wasn't even a space there when God created the space in which he put it. He invented space, which has got properties, at the very least, length, breadth, and height, right? Add in a few more like time. Now, he invented all of those things, and he did it without using anything that pre-existed. Right, so this is the God of the Bible. This is Jesus Christ. He invents those things. Uh oh, that means just like the government who can cancel your currency, the Creator can actually destroy the universe just like that. And He warns us that He is going to do that because of sin. And you'd better be ready to face Him as one of His new creations because you received Jesus Christ. And He doesn't depend on you to actually make you new. He does that work. That's why he deserves all the credit as the creator and the redeemer. But there is that second type of creation. So anytime you go to KFC or you go to the, the donut shop or you pop into one of the British motorway shops, they are creating things out of basic ingredients and they are type two creations. So there's two sorts of creations. And I'd encourage you, get our, our DVDs, Creation, The Final Proof. Have a look at our website. Uh, fact file, Diane, do we have articles on what is a creation and how to recognise them? Yes, we do. We're on the question and answer site, there's specifically a question that, uh, how, how do you recognise a creation? Um, yeah. And we actually take Richard Dawkins to task on one of those as well. <laughs> yeah, um, and lo along with Craig, after last Sunday, which is the first time we've had our museum well, just a fraction of museum collection out. Uh, we had an atheist lady, one of her friends brought her along and she left saying, your evidence for design has blown my mind. And her friend said, well, I'm praying that the hole that it blew was big enough to let Jesus in. So I get trip on the thing, but that, that's what it's done. So she could recognize that she no longer had a tenable position and that for you, Orkadu, we trust that's where you're getting to at the moment. Great stuff. I like that. I like that expression. Um, <laughs> great stuff. Sam, let's have another question. All righty do. Uh, let's have another question. Um, do, 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 do. Ah, here we go. This one comes in from Shugiwa. Uh, question. Fossils can be grouped into one, unchanged, two, devolved, and three, extinct. Could you expand on how you know a fossil is in group two? Unchanged, I'm assuming. 
Oh, no, no. Devolved. Devolved. It's missing bits. That's in a nutshell, yes. <laughs> Diane, do you have any, like, how would we recognize that something, take for instance, the, like, the Ginkai, where we can see that there's clearly devolved, but how would we recognize that devolution? Well, if you compare the fossil ones with the living ones, um, so in the, the ginkgo is actually a good example. The fossil ginkgos were actually much larger and more complex. Um, uh, I don't have any photos at the moment, but if you look at current ginkgo leaves, um, which grow very well in England, um, they're a beautiful triangular shape and they usually have one lobe or one um, little uh, incision in the middle to make two lobes. So ginkgo biloba, two lobes. In the fossil record, they are not only bigger, but they actually have more lobes. Um, so uh, we see bigger ones, more complex ones in the fossil record, simpler ones that are living now. And that applies to quite a few fossils. And I know in, in our collection and in the UK collection, we've got a few examples of that. Uh, I'm sure John could add some, some more yeah, examples yeah. as well. Um, I, I will, because um, if you go to creationresearch.net, click on research. One year I took all of my fossil ginkgos uh, from way back in the geologic column as the evolutionists like to look at it. And then all of you may remember you and I went and picked ginkgo leaves off my ginkgo tree out the back and we compiled them all. And if you want to see the degree of variation, um, then and have a look at the, the, the um, research site, search for ginkgo, and you should see all those pictures there. If you want to know how you can recognise devolution, then not only, I mean, some of the big ginkgos we have here in Australia are sort of that long. The biggest one I found in Queensland is that long, but the living ones are like that. And they're used in health food for the reason they've gotten smaller. The world has degenerated, right? We didn't need ginkgos as squashed up pills from a, a pharmacologist or whatever in the early days. But you'll see the evidence of downward trend in size and all sorts of other things. Um, when you have a look at loss of limbs, the, the best ones are in the reptile family. So mm -hmm. today we still have reptiles which are losing their legs. Don't be surprised. The curse placed on the reptiles, uh, particularly on the snake, the serpent in Genesis, is it would crawl on the ground. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, you find fossil snakes with legs, fossil snakes with half legs, fossil snakes with no legs at all because living snakes usually have them tucked inside their body. Joe, you're a bit of a, a snake expert, at least with the living ones. Uh, what would you have to add to that one? Yeah, it's that goes back to what you're saying. You've, you know, we've managed to even get to the point where isolating the gene that as the legs get smaller, the backs get longer. <laughs> so you can kind of see a progression of as they're devolving their legs, their spine is getting longer and longer until it gets to the point where they are effectively, um, you know, the snakes that we know today. But even snakes today still have what you could refer to as vestigial legs. Uh, they're tiny little spurs, but they are effectively useless. Um, but it does sort of, if I can go one step further to sort of ask, ask the question, okay, if we're talking about something that's devolved, number one, could it be considered a new species? Therefore, what is the difference between devolution and evolution? And just from the fossils, how could we tell whether something has 
gained information or lost information because devolution is to lose information to go downhill um so what what would be any comments on those points Diane, you got any comments on that? Because you're well, out. Well, by devolution, we mean um, degeneration, um, not, not to do with the politics of parliaments in different countries in the UK. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, yeah, if, um, if you compare fossil and living things, um, you see change in so things were bigger, they've got smaller. Things were more complicated, right? They had more structures they have less structures. So we do see change, and we see that in the living world as well. We see we see change, but it's always to do with loss. Mm -hmm. So bigger, more complex, going to smaller or less complex, that is a genuine change, but it's not evolution. It, it's the opposite, which is why we use that term devolved or, or devolution. Um, and you'll see that quite a lot when you compare fossil and living things or even when you look at different kinds of living things in different parts of the world. Now, sometimes that does mean that the things that have changed can no longer breed with the things that were unchanged. Technically, that is speciation, but it's not evolution. It's just an example of how a large and more complex group of creatures has been split into several subgroups, each of which is either smaller or less complex. So yes, there is change, there is speciation, none of it's evolution. It's actually a good example of how the world in general is going downhill. The classic example that comes to my mind is the flightless parrot in New Zealand, right, or the flightless mm -hmm. people in Hawaii, where they've yeah. arrived there mm -hmm. and can only have arrived there with wings because all the other parrots have got wings, but this one has been reduced in flight ability, no problem in New Zealand because there were no savage predators, right? So therefore it survived mm -hmm. running through the trees, climbing a few trees, etc. but it could no longer fly. Now, technically, it can. the other parrots are not interested in breeding with it if it hasn't got wings. If you think discrimination is a human property, you'd better forget that and look at cats and dogs and parrots. They, they, I don't want to marry you, look, you've got no wings. Um, that they are really discriminatory when it comes comes to situations like that. So as Diane said, you could call this species and you could even see the results of that in fossils. But there are some changes that are devolution that won't show up in fossils. And the classic example is the dark color of bears progressively being lost from bears in the middle part of the USA being dark or brown. As you go further north, they become gray or grizzled to finally have your white polar bears. Now, that sort of change is not going to show in the fossil record at all, but it does show in the real world. Uh, you can imagine why you won't find black polar bears at the North Pole because they stand out like sore toes, right? White polar bears in the middle of a dark forest stand out like sore toes. So it's a devolution loss of pigment. Um, I, I've had a look at polar bear skin and the black color is still in the skin, but it's not in the hair anymore. So degeneration, devolution, but it will not show yeah. up easily in the fossil record. In fact, um, we dealt with the whole brola bear 
Pisley Bear a couple of weeks back on Creating Conversations with one of actually Diane's um, sessions, and that'll be going up as a standalone uh, creation bite uh, on Monday, I believe. So keep an eye out for that. Anyway, um, John is going to need to leave a little bit earlier today in a just under half an hour. So it's about time that we move on and we will come back to questions in a little bit. But for starters, <clears throat> excuse me we're going to go over to diane for the first section which will then lead on to john's section so diane mm -hmm. over to you we'll just get your slides up and uh, ready to go yes well th this was an issue we spoke about uh, at our museum presentation where we wanted to show how god is the god of the real world as we uh, do keep going on about uh, so he is the god of history and the God of um, <clears throat> the reality that we see around us and what has come before us. Now, this is something that um, uh, a graph that, uh, that I made uh, quite a while ago. There is actually hard data in the Bible. And I remember showing this to a group of students at a Bible, a Bible college. And one of them asked them, where, where did you get this data? As if you can't get hard data out of the Bible. Uh, but in fact, there is um, there is a hard data there, and this is a, a graph of the lifespans of people, and this is where people do scoff at the Bible and say, oh, "Well, those those big numbers can't possibly be true because we don't observe those in the in the world today." Uh, that's very true, um, but they were written there by the witnesses who were there. Uh, <clears throat> Now, if you uh, that that seems like a lot of data, so let, let's just split it in two, and uh, just look at the first part of this graph. So let's look at the lifespans of people from creation up to the flood. Now you can see they bump along there uh, along the the nine hundred mark. Now I don't suppose any of us are anticipating living to um, nine hundred. Um, most people don't even get to be a tenth of that. Uh, so something was obviously different in the past. So we have to be careful when we say, yes, we can uh, see the evidence of creation from the world around us today. That is very true, but we do have to remember the history of the world. We have to put it into the context. And that's why when we talk about creation, we always talk about it in the context of the scriptures and in the context of who is the creator. So if we have a look at uh, this graph here, lifespans were, apart from this one example or two examples there of shortened lifespans, uh, which we won't go into now, but we can at some, some other time, right? We bump along the 900 mark. How could that possibly have happened? Well, we need to know the history of the real world. And of course, it started out, it was very good. So when God, the creator, so that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God has created the universe through Jesus Christ. We make no apology for that um, because that's what it clearly says there. It was very good and there was no death. But, of course, uh, it didn't stay that way. Death came into the world after our first parents rebelled against their creator and death entered the world. Now, death is actually a process which we are all undergoing at the moment, I'm sorry to say. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just sort of grow up to adult life and then stay much the same 
for uh, several decades uh, in our current lifespans and then just suddenly keel over. Uh, it doesn't happen that way. It's a long downhill run. Now, if you go back to if everything was very good, that means our bodies, human bodies, were very good. There were no genetic mutations. No one was born with any defects. Um, <clears throat> so if you start from a very good start, it takes you a long way for that, a long time for that downhill run to finally catch up with you. Uh, and you do return to the dust, as it clearly says in the Bible, when, when God um, <clears throat> cursed the world with death. So the long lifespans there uh, make sense if you put them into the context of the scriptures. We started out very good, death entered the world, and it took a long time for people to die. However, something obviously changed when we came to the flood, because after that, the lifespans decreased. It's almost as if the graph sort of falls over a cliff. Now, we're also told that things changed then, the environment definitely degraded. Um, <clears throat> God told Noah from now on there will be regular patterns and cycles in the environment, and one of those was cold and heat. So climate change is real. Uh, we have to remember who is in charge of it, right? And it's not Helsinki University and, uh, and those sort of people who want to um, worship the creation, right? It's the creator. And we know that when conditions are harsh, lifespans will decrease. Uh, people who live in very harsh environments, their, their lifespans are shorter. And also our bodies would have decreased because part of that would have been an increase in the mutation rate. And sad to say, we are all born with mutations uh, before we even start growing and, and living our life and acquiring a lot more. And um, <clears throat> if you look uh, along the graph there, the, the print is probably a little bit small to see, but you will start seeing some familiar names. And we forget that people like Abraham lived for 175 years. Jacob lived for 147 years. One of my favourite sort of little quirky stories in the Bible um, is when uh, Jacob is taken by his son Joseph, who was already living in Egypt, um, he, uh, Joseph took his father Jacob to be presented at Pharaoh's court. And the first question Pharaoh asked him was, how old are you? Now, in our society, that's not considered a polite question, but in that society where they venerated old people, it wasn't a rude question. And at that time, Jacob said, oh, well, actually, I'm only 130, um, but I, I look old and decrepit, but I've had a long, hard life. Um, and they knew that the lifespans were going down. Now, Jacob did live another 17 years and eventually died at 147. Um, it wasn't until around Moses' time, remember, wrote, Moses wrote Psalm 90. And in that, that's where we get the classic uh, three score and ten uh, or four score if you're strong. That's where we get that quote from, from Psalm 90. So lifespans have gone downhill and they're now bumping around the uh, 70 to 80 mark. So again, if we put that into the real history of the real world, yes, there was creation, there is the fall, there is the flood. And so we go from it was good, we go from death entering the world, but still long lifespans, we go to the environment degrading 
lifespans decreasing. Um, and we see examples of how the world is no longer good. And uh, uh, John and I observed a, a small but quirky um, example of that while, while I was actually in Brisbane. Um, John propagates orchids in his greenhouse and whenever I go there I love to see them and I love to take photos of them and a few years ago I took a photo of this particularly beautiful flower um, that uh, has these beautiful big frilly petals and here it is uh, growing inside the greenhouse you can see the, the structure of it um, in Brisbane's climate, you don't actually have to have glass in your greenhouse. Shade cloth on a framework is enough um, to uh, to uh, keep them sheltered from the sun. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't keep them sheltered from the rain. Now, when I was up there last week, just before I left, one of these plants um, was just coming into flower, and this is its bud, which I think is rather interesting sort of shape um, and I thought oh lovely one of these beautiful orchids is about to come out and I can take another photo of it I had to fly back to Canberra before this thing opened so I asked John oh please take a photo of that flower when it comes out and he had to report a rather sad story to me this is what happened to this flower can you see it did come out but it was immediately uh, somewhat battered. It was battered by rain rather than uh, <clears throat> the usual way that uh, John waters these plants is a, is a little bit more gentle, but there was a heavy rainstorm and these, these plants got battered. Now that is a good reminder of how the world has degenerated in ways that we don't think. The original good world was watered by a rising mist. Think of how lovely that would have been for the plants. It also would have settled all of the dust and the pollen and things like that, so there would have been fewer allergies. It was a good world in even the most minute aspects of it. Um, so uh, every time we see something like this, we are reminded that the world is no longer good. And so when we look at the hard data, as it were, that's in the Bible, these facts and figures, we see that the real history of the real world is going from good to bad to worse. Now, the other aspect of having these life, long lifespans is something that the sceptics do um, come up with occasionally in that uh, they say, well, Bible stories were really just handed down as oral tradition and that uh, they got embellished and, and lost in the mists of time. The Bible also tells us not only were these lifespans long, but they also overlapped by a lot. If you read Genesis 5, you'll find a list of people where it says so-and-so lived for so many years, had a son who is named, uh, and then lived for more years. So we're actually told how long the lifespans overlap. So you can also graph that. And if you do so, you can see, uh, particularly before the flood, sort of four or five generations could, uh, could, could overlap. And even after the flood between um, Noah and Shem, going up to Jacob. So we're into uh, sort of times where they can be compared with secular history. If you have that much overlap, you can go and check your facts with your great-great-grandfather and yes. say, well, did this happen? And he would say, yes, I was there. I saw it. 
So there is good backup systems, good um, confirmation of what happened, who was there, how long did it take. So there is good hard data in the Bible. There is good, accurate records. So don't be afraid to stand your ground. The Bible is the real history of the real world. And Christ, the creator, is also the judge, saviour and coming king of this world. And as John said at the beginning of our session, um, we don't just look at uh, the beginning. We look at the end and everything that has happened uh, in there as well. And Jesus Christ is ruler of all of those things. And if we can just come back to us now. Absolutely. Um, all good. Uh, just one other thing that uh, I think we, we need to, to make about creation. There is a secular movement called the intelligent design movement where some people have looked at the obvious evidence for design and they just cannot uh, ignore it. And, and in fact, the, the bacterial flagellum is one of the things that they actually study, but they don't want to talk about the creator. And it is really important that we do that. We make no bones about who we believe the creator is. And you can <clears throat> just use a simple example from your own experience to explain that. Now, here is, uh, can, can you see what this is? Uh, right, yeah. it's, it's a ball of yarn. And I like to knit some, so here is something that, that I've knitted. And in fact, I, I um, designed the pattern for this. Uh, if, if I hold it close to the camera, you might be able to see there is a pattern in that. Um, mm -hmm. Now, if we, no one would believe that this ball of yarn made this scarf. Uh, that's just plain common sense. The link is not the time and energy involved in getting this yarn into this scarf the link is a person and so that is why when we talk about creation we always talk about the person so maybe we can go back to us uh, and back to uh john's um, the, the rest of john's message about Indeed. christ the creator yes yeah, so john is going to need to uh leave in the next sort of 15 to 20 minutes or so so john i'm going to hand straight over to you to take us through the last part of tonight's presentation before we then do some question and answer so for those of you who know i actually my wife has dementia i've got to take her to the doctor unusually on a saturday morning but uh i've never had a saturday doctor appointment so it's a new new event for me but just a couple of comments mm -hmm. on what Diane has said that are very insightful so if you look at Noah, he did know Methuselah. He did know quite a lot of these guys, right? In fact, Methuselah was still uh, was alive when Adam was there and Methuselah knew Noah. So the overlap as, yeah. as a source of information is incredible. Likewise with Jacob, he not only said, I may have had a tough life, but if you look at the, the real context, he said, and I don't live anywhere near as long as my father's. Right. So mm -hmm. he already knew there's internal evidence that he knew there was a time when people lived a lot longer. I find that too in Aboriginal myths and legends. There was a time when we didn't die. There was a time when we lived a lot longer. Right. In other words, this is passed down outside of the Bible as well as inside of the Bible. And of course, if you think through where Moses fits on the other end of that graph, he's not even on those lists that Diane showed, you come across statements that you really do need to see the context where the Lord says to Moses, the sins of the fathers pass into the third and fourth generation. 
And if you're fortunate, you have four generations alive today at the most, right? Before the effect of great-grandpa's sin starts to, to, to uh, ameliorate at the other end. You couldn't have said that before the flood. The sins of the fathers passed to the ninth and tenth generation. So it even helps you date some of the comments that the Lord has made that apply in our time frame, but they did not apply before Noah's flood. You would have had to qualify it a lot better. Okay, Christ as creator. Uh, let me just uh, see if I can figure out how to get back here again. Uh, there we go. Are we up yet, Joseph? Where Where is my PowerPoint yeah. gone? There we are. There you go. Okay, good stuff. Okay, it's doing the thing again that it was doing before. It's not going to show you. Are you on okay. your presentation, John? My presentation is showing up. Let me do that again. Okay, that's on there, guys. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Okay, good. One of the things that's been a tremendous blessing as well as tremendous controversy in our ministry is when you look at Christ as the creator of all, then you have to deal with social constructs like marriage. And uh, I've so often preached on Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus' enemies came and said, well, they were, they were setting out to trap him. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Uh, a tricky question. They wanted to catch him in the eyes of the people. And Jesus answered and said to them, haven't you read he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will be one flesh. Now, do you realize what this is teaching you? That in the beginning, marriage was invented. It wasn't just an ordinary social invention by man. It was part of God's creation. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother. In other words, the creator had a social construct he was building into the creation. So when you look at living together without marriage, when you look at two males getting married, I'm sorry, there's so much teaching in here that tells you there are so many things that are wrong because the creator has made that which is right. Therefore, Jesus said, the people who are joined together are no more two, but one flesh. One flesh? Well, that's what Adam and Eve were at the start. God made Adam put him to sleep, and then took out of his side, and he made a woman. And Adam's first quoted, quoted words are, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that's a woman. Right, she was taken out of his side, and when they were remarried, or sorry, when they were married, because the first wedding service is occurring back there in Genesis, where there is the father of the bride, there is the son, there is the Holy Spirit, and you're looking at you know, the person who does the ceremony along with two witnesses. That's where our whole marriage ceremony comes from. And look at the statement. What God has joined together, don't let man put asunder. So when we live in an age where people live together, then they decide to separate, where the homosexuals have the highest divorce rate once they get married, uh, then basically you're looking at somebody breaking the basic rule. God made them male and female. Genesis 1.27 Here's where Jesus is quoting from. So God created man in his own image. But now you're a little more informed. God, Elohim, the powerful creator, is not just a nameless God. He is God who is Jesus. He made man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. 
if you've ever wondered why Jesus Christ came as Savior, it's because man was made in the image of Jesus Christ. When man sinned, it was the image of Jesus who was afflicted. Therefore, it was Jesus who came as man's Savior, not the Holy Spirit, not the Father. And you'll find that constantly in the New Testament, Jesus is always portrayed as working in us to restore his image in us daily. But in the beginning, male and female. I'm really pleased that Richard Dawkins has come out in agreement with that. Or he may not like its origin or source, but in reality, there's only boy and girl dinosaurs. <laughs> you don't dig up any trans dinosaurs. There's only boy and girl dogs. There's only boy and girl when it comes to human beings. Therefore, said Jesus, and he quotes from this verse in Genesis chapter 2, and for those of you who think there's two versions of creation in Genesis, sorry, Jesus' statement here quotes from both chapters and they are one statement. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and join to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So because I have to leave and go to the doctors soon, uh, take my darling wife, please pray for us there, because in the last month or so, as Diane has been up here, will share her dementia has really um, made her struggle, and it's really tragic to see a degenerate disease, because that's what it is. It's a real good example, sorry, a real bad example of what devolution does. Marriage, that's the New Testament doctrine. Its basis in your, in your New Testament times is Matthew chapter 19. That's why you find churches that don't preach the Bible is the whole word of God from Genesis 1 and 2 to Matthew 19. In the end, they will abandon marriage, marriage of male and female, then go to marriage of anybody, then go to non-marriage at all. But the basis of Genesis 1 and 2 is in the beginning God, which God, the answer is Christ the creator. So my finishing point is very simple. If you abandon Christ as creator, if you abandon him as creator, you no longer have him as savior because Jehovah, the Lord God, uh, Yahweh, as some Hebrew schools like to become, it's becoming a more and more popular with the four letters for the Lord's name, uh, says, if I'm not the savior, you don't have one. So Jehovah, Yahweh is Jesus Christ, who is the creator. And without that, you don't have marriage. You don't have any social constructs. You don't even have right and wrong when it comes to sex. So again, good on you, Richard Dawkins, for sticking up for the truth. Even You've got a long way to go, but we are praying for you. Even though you asked us not to a few years back, we certainly will. All right, Joe, if you'll take me off, and I'm sure there's plenty of stuff in there for you guys to actually talk through. Absolutely. Thanks very much, John. Um, hopefully you can hear me because there we are. My my um, my screen is being very, very slow and very, very blocky. So I'll be leaving most of the work to Sam to uh, move on to the next part, which uh, is, of course, the questions and answers and general discussion. So, John, thank you so much for joining us and we will uh, see you next week. Good. Sir. Catch, you, catch you later. There we go. Great stuff. Um, right. Well, Sam, over to you then. Let's see if there's any other thank yous. And then let's spend the last sort of uh, 15 minutes, really, um, beginning to wrap up as we do a few final questions and discussions and also look forward to next week where we will be dealing with another one of those lovely controversial topics uh, that's come up recently. So, Sam, over to you. You're muted, Hi. Sam, or your something's not right, Sam. Never mind. 
We know that Sam has been having some trouble with his microphone. We have got a new one on his way to him, so uh, don't worry. While Sam is uh, doing that, uh, let's see if we can grab a question. Sam will do the thank yous when he, he comes back, hopefully. Um, yeah, right, let's... Right, back now. Oh, there we are. You're back now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Go right. for it. Go Sorry for about it. that. This microphone is basically on its last legs. It's very temperamental, so I do apologise. Anyway, uh, I've got a super chat here we need to give thanks for. This comes in from Carmine. Super chat for four ninety nine US buckaroos. Thank you for all you do. Thank you so much for giving. Uh, it really does mean a lot. Everyone who does give, even if it's small, it really does mean a lot. It all builds up. Mm-hmm really does help the ministry out uh we've also got a uh, doki doki super sticker for 149 us buckaroos a purple mustache yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you guys have that <laughs> okay all right then uh and then we've got i am at with a uh, super sticker for us buckaroos pair character exaggeratingly stretching his arm forward to offer a cup of coffee there we go. Oh, yes, we can uh, do with that here. <laughs> yes. yes, indeed. And Sandy is coming with uh, five and a half New Zealand buckaroos, a pair character lifting some weights saying, keep it up. There we go. That was my <laughs> terrible pair this. impression. Um, <laughs> but there we go. Uh, so uh, let us do this one's a quick one. We can get this out of the way quickly. Uh, Neil comes in and says, what qualification do you require to call yourself a scientist? Any at all? I'd like to answer some of that. For me, I, you know, was seven years in, I'd gotten my BS degree and master's degree. I go for my PhD and the professor said, uh, I run a five-year program. You have to have four refereed publications before you get the PhD. (laughs) I was like, I will do it in three. Oh no, I run a five-year program. So I did it in four and a half. I, you know, I, I beat it. What qualifies you? I get out, go work for Oak Ridge National Lab, and one of the top scientists I work with doesn't have a PhD, highly respected, and is is doing research. It's basically a scientist is someone who is doing research on the physical world, making observations that can be tested and validated. And, uh, and so shared. I would I would add and shared as well. I think that's a shared. really important. Which aspect. is interesting because for my PhD, one of the professors on my committee, his basic uh, philosophy, and he would tell you over and over again, if you don't communicate it, you never did it. If you don't communicate it in a publication, whether it's refereed or a local paper or communicated in a talk, then you never did the work. And yes, I have a lot of work that I did that I never communicated. Um, <laughs> there's still data out there that needed to be written up. But you, you don't have to have a PhD. I, I'm telling you, I've worked with some of the top scientists in, in the world. Uh, John Mackay is as good of a scientist as there is out there that I've worked with. You don't have to have a PhD. He's making observations. Diane, you've you've been with him. You've seen it, Joe. You've seen it, and he is communicating it. So, yeah, I think it, it's it can often actually in 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 my experience, I found that a lot of times those who have come into academia a um, unorthodox way, shall we say, yeah. uh, you know, the orthodox way is you know school, college 
you do your undergraduate degree or in the this is in the uk system anyway which is i think fairly similar to um the states you do your undergraduate degree see so your bachelor's of science or of arts you do your master's degree yes. and then you go on to do a doctorate right whether it's a phd mm -hmm. or we have a um different types of doctorate levels in the uk and so on and so forth but that's your standard academic way whereas i know a number of people one in particular i'm thinking of who effectively became a janitor um at a museum and ended up being taken sort of under the wing of one of the the researchers there and he started doing real research and he basically ended up a few years later uh doing a phd thesis being awarded a phd not an honorary one an actual phd thesis because he was coming at it from a slightly unorthodox view point of view he noticed things that had never been noticed before mm -hmm. right and started going hang on a minute i've seen this before in this museum and i've seen it in that museum and let's compare the two and actually hang on a minute we're dealing with something completely different here so he's they basically said to him would you like to do a phd on this because nobody else has thought of this before right so properly accredited phd but it's because he didn't come through the standard academic route yeah. that he started noticing these connections and so you'll find that it's that asking questions it's that making observations it's yeah. that testing observations and then writing and sharing it in whatever medium there is and you know peer review is a, is a great thing if it's done correct there's it's obviously got its um it's got its shortcomings and it's got its pitfalls but ultimately it's about sharing information and sharing observations and sharing testing that you've ended up doing so it's that's um, one that's one of the key ways of making it validated because mm -hmm. when when you write a publication it's got to be written in a way that it can be reproduced yes yeah. and in the past that was what was commonly done someone would yeah. read someone and, else's research and you would repeat it yeah and understood by people um who perhaps are not specialists in what you are doing for instance you know so uh, i mean when when we're doing doing research uh, and i'm sort of doing my yearly reports on what research i'm doing right it gets presented to uh non-specialized people of academia so they don't specialize in the exact thing that i'm doing but they have a very good general idea they're way up in, in academia right but they have a very good general idea of science and ultimately the question is can they read what i've been doing and understand yes. what i'm trying to do right if they can't then that suggests that perhaps i'm not doing something quite right or i'm not doing it as thoroughly as i needed to or i'm doing something so specific that it really has no context in the greater in the greater world so it's about making that stuff accessible as well so yeah there's a whole whole we can talk about what a scientist does for a long while um diane any craig any comments you've both been involved in uh, in academia well well, well. I, I can mention something then. Um, it, it just made me think of a, a, a chap that was a farmer up in New South Wales. I think his name was Lindsay Heim, and he was a researcher in owls. But he was just a farmer, and he would uh, spend his evenings going out and uh, researching owls, listening to their calls. He'd even climb trees, check out the nests in the days, you know, where they did that sort of thing. Um, and he actually... Um, added an incredible amount of knowledge about owls that you know the scientific community didn't have access to or didn't do or, um and uh, you wouldn't have called him a science graduate or anything like that but he was a knowledge seeker and i think really a scientist is a knowledge seeker and uh he did an incredible amount of work on just the behavior of owls in in the, the region of new south wales yeah. 
I like what um, Neil has just mentioned. It's something that we actually point out a number of times, right? Charles Darwin studied and actually graduated in theology, and many accept him as a scientist, as he wasn't an expert in fossils or biology. Um, no, in fact, uh, both John, in fact, John, myself, Diane, Craig, and Glenn are all vastly more qualified to comment on evolution than Charles Darwin ever was. So <laughs> yeah. it upsets some people. Well, when Greta Sunberg's got hope. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Well, she actually started making. And then you you anyway. see George Mendel. When I took genetics, that's who we studied. And yeah, yeah, Mega Mendel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Playing with peas in the back garden. Yes. Yeah. No. Excellent. Um, Sam, let's have another question. All right. Uh, let's do another one. Um, let's have a look. See here. Uh, how about this one? This one's an interesting one. Sandy C comes in with this one. Question, are nylon-eating bacteria, nylon A's, evidence of new genetic information causing a beneficial mutation? I, I don't know. <laughs> nylon is new, so this is something that's been newly exposed to them. I would assume that it's always had those capabilities there. But now that we see it exposed to it, you've got this now population of microorganisms that have developed that always had the genetic capabilities. It was breaking down other organics, um, most likely. Diane, Joe? Yes, uh, people think that this is uh, a, a new mutation, new, new information added. Um, it's not quite as weird uh, as it sounds. The uh, nylon-eating bacteria, that they really only live in the sort of effluent, the, the outflow from the nylon-producing uh, factory, which is where they were found. Um, but if you think about it, all organic molecules consist of long strings of carbon mm -hmm. atoms with various other things attached to them. And nylon is actually organic because it is derived mm -hmm. from right. from coal and oil um, and uh, the geologist can tell us more about that but in terms of the actual chemistry uh, it's just long strings of carbon atoms with various other atoms attached so it is not quite so weird that bacteria which are the world's recyclers they break down things mm -hmm. and so they have to break down organic molecules which consists of long strings of carbon atoms with other atoms attached, that they would have the wherewithal for breaking these things apart. And uh, they have actually looked at the, uh, the, the enzyme and, and the genetics for that. And it's just, it's a variation uh, of an enzyme that the bacteria already had. Uh, and an enzyme is simply a great big molecule, a big protein, which, um, enhances the rate of reaction and it actually uh, enables the uh, reactive elements to the two things that are reacting together to be held together for a quick time so they can react and then lets them go and so it has a particular structure um, where the, um, the the reactive substrates the things that you're going to make a chemical reaction happen, uh, holds them together, lets them go without being altered itself. 
so it's not quite as weird as it sounds. Um, nylon is uh, and nylon is not quite as weird as it sounds either. If you go back to the basic chemistry, yes, we have bacteria which are very good at breaking down long strings of carbon atoms with other bits attached to them. Uh, so again, it's variation, but it's not evolution. Yeah. <clears throat> Great stuff. Some source. Right. Uh, let us do this. Next question comes in from Doki Doki. This is a very quick one. Will Indiana Joe be padding his re debate record with more wins this summer? <laughs> I would like to. I have to admit, I don't find the online forum the greatest for debating. Um, it's not my chosen preferred method, but it is also really the only practical method. But there we go. Um, we've actually had a request to do a, a, a debate on a different YouTube channel, which uh, I need to respond to um, fairly uh, soon. But um, yes, I would be open to doing more debates. But I think that I've mentioned to... to um, to um, Donnie on Standing for Truth, which we will be on Standing for Truth uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks' time, uh, just as a, as a side note, uh, doing some of the Easter stuff with me and John. But um, I've said to Donnie that I would be very interested in doing an open mic discussion with John, which is sort of like multiple mini debates all in one. Um, we may be enough to try it over on this channel at some point, uh, <laughs> but we'll see how that goes. But the idea is that, uh, say it's me and John, um, and we have a, a, a basically anybody who wishes can jump onto the stream and can ask questions and can get into a dialogue and get a bit backwards and forwards in um, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think that that, that would be a... Um, a good and a useful um, thing to trial. So uh, hopefully that will happen between Creation Research and Standing for Truth at some point soon. Uh, maybe we can arrange a date for that after uh, our next Easter program, which we're doing with them. But yes, I will Lord willing be doing some more debates going forward. I'd just like to have it sort of live in person. I think, I think that's a much better forum for debating. But anyway... All right, then. Let's uh, have one final question, Sam, before we begin to wrap up, because we've only got a couple of minutes left of the stream. So. Okay. All right, then. Well, this is relevant. This question is relevant um, to our topic, so we we'll, might mm -hmm. as well end on a nice sort of round note. Absolutely. This one, again, comes in from Doki Doki. How would you respond to those who say Mark 10.6 is a verse about marriage and not creation, <coughs> but from the beginning of, of the creation, God made them male and female? Well, it's a uh, comment on the creation of marriage, so... You can't pull, you can't tease the two apart. Um, he, his entire to put it into context, right? And then I'll let there this comment to put this into context. We are talking about the issue of divorce, right? And effectively, Jesus is making the point that yeah, Moses uh, allowed you, or rather, you know, there was an allowance of divorce through the Mosaic law because you are sinful people that wanted it um it's not the ideal but actually what is the ideal well you have to go back to the creation of marriage when was the creation of marriage at the creation of male and female when was the creation of male and female from the beginning right so from the beginning of the creation 
man and women have been man and woman, and they have been designed for one another. One man, one woman for life. That's the biblical concept of marriage. And you see, when we get into discussions about things like Leviticus and the law for the Levites, or we get into um, you know the, the Mosaic law and stuff like that, and a lot of times, uh, in fact, this is a topic I'd like to discuss on Creation Conversations at some point, which part of the Old Testament do we keep? Which part do we throw out? Right? We don't have altars which are constantly running blood anymore, and for good reason. But do we need to listen to things about marriage in the Leviticus? Uh, do we need to listen about you know what we do uh, to our bodies in the Leviticus? Well, there's a lot of interest and interesting things you can delve down into there. But ultimately, if you want the perfect picture of it, you need to go back to the creation of these mandates. Right. So when was marriage mandated? In the beginning, when God made the male and female. And anything that deviates from that pattern which God created is going to have issues with it. The only reason that the specific rules needed to come in in the first place is because man had deviated off of it so far um, that it really needed, you know, sitting down and going, right, no, you don't do this. You do do that. That's an abomination, right? But if you just want the simplest picture, look back to the first time that it was ever mandated, and you'll find that the whole point that Jesus is making here is that God created them male and female. He created the man in the image of God. He created the woman out of the man for the man. And that is the picture of marriage going forwards full stop. Right? And if you stick with that definition, you really can't go wrong. So it is a comment on marriage, but it is also a comment on creation as well, because it's a comment on the creation of marriage. And you'll find that those two things are inextricably linked, just as Jesus and the creation are inextricably linked, because he is the creator. Um, comments, guys. Just the fact that when asked about marriage, he answered it by quoting from the creation account. Yeah. And we already read the verse earlier. He said, well, if you won't believe what Moses wrote, because he wrote about me, how are you going to believe my words? Um, he's the one that was telling Moses what to write and what to record. So when I was you know, active as a scientist, I always had someone there with me, making observations, telling them what to record. Jesus told him what to record. So he was able to quote mm -hmm. from him. Absolutely. He knew it was truth. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, uh, we have hit the hour, which is fantastic. So it is time to wrap up now. Thank you all very much for joining us. We've had a great uh, run of viewers all the way through, which is wonderful. Thank you all for your questions. And remember that if we don't get to your questions, we do hang on to them and try and get around to them in our Q&A special section, which happens every few weeks. So do stick around for that. Uh, this week, it is uh, my mainly my job and um, Sam's, but mainly mine because I've been lacking on getting all of future streams for the next few weeks set up. Uh, but we have got a, a great series coming up. We uh, Next week, we will be dealing with the concept of how many species of human are there. Because, of course, from a secular perspective, there are many species of human because we evolved from a common ape-like ancestor down into all of the diversity that we see today. Now, how can we actually address this from a biblical point of view as well as from a scientific point of view? Remember, we were talking about what a scientist does earlier, right? 
from an observational point of view, but also how does it really fit into the Bible? Because there have been a lot of um, people, even from within the creation community, discussing, well, maybe there are different species of humans. Um, well, what even is a species and how do we fit it all in? And there's a whole load of stuff that we can go into this. So it should be a really good program. And we will uh, actually bring you some interesting stuff from my visit to the Neanderthal site on Jersey. So uh, do... Um, Stick around for that next week. Continue to watch all the programs as they go out. And going forward, we've got some other uh, programs as well as some interviews lined up, including a two-part Easter special that we were just discussing before the show. So do make sure that you join us in the future weeks. Continue to like, subscribe, and share around. Thanks very much, guys. And, uh, yeah, we will catch you later. Any last words from the team? Looking forward to next right. week. Thank you for tuning in. Absolutely. Yes. Catch you later, folks. It's been great to see you. 